Hey everybody, this is Jerry, and welcome to the New Deal Podcast. For more rantings and ravings, you can head on over to thenewdeal.com, like the Facebook page, follow me at Real New Deal on Twitter, um, and you can even head over to YouTube where I'm posting new minute segments, which are just a summary of the day's happenings, my take on what's going on, and just so that I can catch up with everybody uh, each and every day. So um, thank you very much for listening. Got a lot to cover today. Uh, so I'd like to jump right in. We're going to be taking a look at COVID-19. Uh, I'd also like to check out Trump's new uh, take on how to handle the pandemic moving forward. Uh, we've got a SCOTUS uh, Supreme Court hearing. Uh, we've got day three today. So that's going on. We've got an election coming up. Um, and we've got, you know, I'd like to talk a little bit about voter suppression, voter fraud, um, the mail-in ballots and things like that. So We'll kick off with the COVID numbers. Uh, COVID numbers are rising. Uh, we have 33 states with increases in COVID cases. And as recently as last week, our president had COVID-19. Uh, the man who has basically said that we don't need to pay much attention to it. Don't worry about it. You know, everybody's going to catch it. No big deal. He ended up catching COVID-19 and was hospitalized the day after he tested positive. There were a lot of questions about when he tested positive because just two days before he was at a debate with Joe Biden. And there was a lot of concern that Joe Biden may have been infected by President Trump and members of Donald's Trump team were infected. And we didn't know when they were infected and how they may have spread it. And of course, Trump was still holding rallies, large rallies uh, indoors in some cases. And there were people at those events who also tested positive for COVID. So large super spreader events uh, that they actually believe may have started at the Rose Garden at the nomination ceremony for Amy Coney Barrett, who we'll speak about in a little bit. So the day after Trump tests positive for COVID, He's medevaced to Walter Reed Hospital. And from there, we don't really get a lot of information. We didn't know how he was doing. We heard he was being treated with an experimental cocktail of drugs that was not approved by the FDA, even for emergency use. So, med med you know, medical methods that not even you or I uh, could have access to. And you understand that it's the president and that he's an important person. But those types of risks made it seem like he was in worse shape than maybe his staff indicated. Further, the doctors weren't giving too much information to his condition, and the information that his chief of staff gave, which said that the situation was a little touch-and-go, contradicted what the doctors were saying, which was that he was doing great. And we've seen in the past doctors kind of cover up for Trump, whether it's a standard physical or, you know, just general checkup stuff. And he always wants to be made out to be Superman. So were those questions there about how healthy he actually was and major concerns about whether or not he would come out of it. He then went on a motorcade ride with a Secret Service agent in the car. Closed space. He's positive for COVID at that time. So he puts their health and lives in danger, as well as their families, you would assume. And within a few days, he's actually released from the hospital. And he's immediately talking about holding more campaign rallies and being out in public. 
And he's talking about doing so within the 14-day window of him testing positive for COVID. And most Americans are required to quarantine if they come in contact with a person who's COVID positive for 14 days. But the president wants to go hold large public rallies within 14 days of his positive test, which means that he didn't really learn anything by catching COVID-19. And his staff was in danger. You know, you don't know the health of everyone uh, there. Chris Christie was hospitalized. Uh, Trump's children, I believe, um, were at least exposed. His wife tested positive. And so there are major issues with the way, with with how he thinks about the severity of the virus. And it's almost worse that he's had it now because he, uh, paraphrasing, basically said it was a gift from God that he should have it. And he's so strong now. And now he's dancing at large rallies that he's holding in public. And it's just a little concerning that the leader of what, you know, who the guy who's supposed to be the leader of the free world is not taking the virus seriously at all, at all, despite having had it, despite people around him having had it. And it's costing him in the polls. And we'll get back to that in a little bit. But it's a little bit sickening because 216,000 Americans have died and Donald Trump is making light of the fact that he had COVID-19 and recovered and it's doing a little bit of a disservice to those who have lost loved ones to COVID-19, people who did not have access to the types of medication that he did, people who were not warned uh, of the real danger of COVID because of information that his administration withheld and people who died in part because of their slow response generally and their poor handling of the virus up even until this day. So COVID is here still. It's real. It's not going away. Two vaccine, um, sorry, one, one treatment trial and one vaccine trial were both paused this week. So it's very unlikely we're going to see a vaccine anytime soon, probably not by the end of the year. Uh, Trump had promised by mid-October. Well, it's mid-October. There's no vaccine. So that went out the window. We And, and we're approaching flu season. The, tr- the Trump administration's current response to coronavirus is now um, herd immunity. Herd immunity is their new strategy. Herd immunity is an idea that if enough people are exposed to a virus or an illness... They will then develop antibodies, and because they have antibodies, they'll be immune to the virus. So if you just let everybody get it, yeah, some people will die, but then everyone will be immune, the virus will die out, and we'll move on with our lives. Herd immunity is just a really fancy way of saying, let the virus run unchecked and uninhibited. Unchecked and uninhibited. And if it is the federal government's stance that we're going to adopt this, what are primarily Republican-run states going to do? Remove mask mandates? Remove social distancing mandates? It's a really dangerous road, especially when a quarter million Americans are dead of this virus, and we've seen over 8 million cases. America is essentially flying the white flag for coronavirus. It's another white flag, another war we are losing. We just keep losing wars. And COVID-19... Trump said it's a battle. He said it's a war. It's a battlefield. We're losing. And we're, we're long term, we're going to lose. There's no way that we anyone is going to look back on this segment in history and say, wow, America really 
overcame that. They they met the task. The the population rose up and did what they needed to do to keep everybody safe, and lives were saved. That moment is gone. Uh, we, we've lost here. So herd immunity is is where we're at. We're not talking about social distancing. We're not talking about uh, mask mandates. The Trump administration refuses to implement any type of federal guidelines or federal standards. He's leaving it to the states. And I see a lot of people saying, oh, well, leave it to the states. You know, let the states decide how they want to do it. There are borders between states. And those borders are invisible lines. And people cross those invisible lines every single day. And if I'm a state that is trying to handle COVID responsibly with mask mandates, work from home orders, uh, proper social distancing, maybe the closing of restaurants and bars are the limits on how many people, limits on capacity. And I border a state who essentially has no mandates whatsoever. Those people are coming into the state and those people are going to be spreading the virus in a state that is trying to maintain or trying to keep the virus out. And that is why it can't be left to the states because this is not a state's issue. This is a national issue. On, this is really a global issue, and we should have global initiatives on this because people, again, cross borders from country to country. And we're seeing a bigger outbreak in Europe now. This is not going away. We're coming into flu season, and it's all getting very real, and the response cannot be just let everybody get it. The World Health Organization chief uh, was speaking, and uh I actually have a I have a clip of that audio, so I just want to go ahead and play that here. There has been some discussion recently about the concept of reaching so-called herd immunity by letting the virus spread. Herd immunity is a concept used for vaccination in which a population can be protected from a certain virus if a threshold of vaccination is reached. For example, herd immunity against measles requires about 95% of a population to be vaccinated. The remaining 5% will be protected by the fact that measles will not spread among those who are vaccinated. For polio, the threshold is about 80%. In other words, Herd immunity is achieved by protecting people from a virus, not by exposing them to it. Never in the history of public health has herd immunity been used as a strategy for responding to an outbreak, let alone a pandemic. It's scientifically and ethically problematic. Never in the history of public health has herd immunity been used as a strategy for responding to an outbreak, let alone a pandemic? It's scientifically and ethically problematic. Those are extremely strong words. The Trump administration is trying to use a strategy that, by definition, requires X percent of the population to be vaccinated with no vaccine. The scientifically and ethically problematic part comes when you begin to realize that herd immunity is acceptance of human death. You are saying that we will allow for so many deaths so long as we reach herd immunity. 
That is the the premise that the Trump administration would be operating under, as in American lives are expendable to reach our goal because we cannot figure out a better way. We cannot find a better way to save lives. I just want to go over some of the numbers here. Since March, 8 million Americans have contracted the virus, nearly. 215,000 have died. If you do the math, 215,000 divided by 8 million, uh, that gives you about a 3% fatality rate in the U.S. The fatality rate of flu is 0.01%. So that makes coronavirus 30 times more deadly than the flu. Here's the scary thing. COVID came to the U.S. in February, March, but it really hit hard in, in April and May. That time frame is considered a flu downtime. We're not battling the flu in April and May, certainly not June, July, August. So everything we've seen so far, the number of people that have been infected, all the people who have died, that has all happened in what is considered a flu downtime period. We are now approaching flu season. And if you project things out, the, the, the last six months were probably the better six months. The next six months, barring a vaccine, could be much, much, much worse. It's not just because we're going to have the flu and COVID at the same time. It's going to be because COVID will probably spread more easily. And here's something that isn't brought up too, too much. In May, there was a lot of concern about what happens around Memorial Day. Will we see an uptick in cases because people are going to be trying to go out and enjoy the holiday? We aren't up against Memorial Day. We aren't up against Labor Day. We're up against Halloween, Thanksgiving, Christmas Eve and Christmas, all the Christmas parties, all the other religious events uh, that happen in the November, December timeframe for different religions. And we're up against New Year's, which... I believe we all have a lot of cause to celebrate, especially this year. We're talking about coming into a period where the vaccine will likely spread more, where the flu will begin entering the picture, and where people are going to be more inclined to congregate because of the holidays. If the next six months are anything like the last, we could easily see 400,000 Americans dead by March. And if this is worse, if this is a worse wave, we could see far more than that, especially if there is no federal strategy. And even if Joe Biden wins the election, Joe Biden is not sworn in until January 20th of 2021, which means November and December and the bulk of January will be gone before any real national strategy can be put in place because it's not going to happen under this administration. We have not seen the worst of COVID-19. We were lucky that it hit us when it did earlier in the year, when it was less likely to spread, and we had six months to game plan, and we failed. And the Trump administration says, wave the white flag, accept our losses, move on, it's unacceptable. So that's where we're at with COVID-19. That's big story number one. You wouldn't think so, but when lives are at stake, I feel like it's more important, maybe just a little bit, than the other big event that's currently going on, which is the SCOTUS nominee. Ruth Bader Ginsburg passed away last month, and it was devastating. I was sitting on the couch on a Friday night, and I got a text message from my brother, and it said, RBG died. And I said, nope, because that was not news that I could handle. This close to an election, this close to 
being a place where maybe we can salvage some reputation for America, maybe things are looking a little bit brighter, that news was devastating. I felt a feeling that night that I had not felt since the night Trump won the election. It was devastation on a spiritual level, knowing the implications of what was happening, knowing immediately that Roe v. Wade was on the line, that healthcare was on the line, that women's rights in general, reproductive rights on the line, LGBTQ rights on the line, marriage equality rights on the line, everything. Everything gets called back into question when there could be a six to three supermajority on the Supreme Court, especially if the Democrats do not carry the Senate. It was scary. So Donald Trump quickly pushes through Amy Coney Barrett. And Democrats, and and I'm going to have an issue with this forever because it was a failing then and it's a failing now. The GOP theft of the Supreme Court seat from Barack Obama over 240 days prior to an election is the largest hypocritical move ever to be carried out by a political party in our country. It is blatant, it's obvious, and it's, it's in our face. And it's unapologetic. The Republicans claimed up and down. You can see all the video clips. You can see Lindsey Graham. You can see Ted Cruz all saying, well, you know, if the same thing were to happen with an election coming up and we had an opening, we would wait till the next president was in office. Well, that went out the that that went right out the window because here's a nominee coming through and all the Republicans have backtracked every single one of them. So we're in a situation where they're completing a scheme. They are completing a scheme put forth by Mitch McConnell to hold up not only the Supreme Court nomination of Merrick Garland, a moderate judge, by the way, that Barack Obama basically nominated as a an olive branch to the right so that they could confirm they didn't even look at him. They also held up a bunch of federal judgeships, which were not filled until Trump took office because, guess what, the Senate wouldn't confirm any of them. So here we are with Amy Coney Barrett being nominated by Donald Trump 46 days prior to an election, an election that is underway with early voting and mail-in voting happening in states across the country, and an election where Donald Trump is currently losing by somewhere between 8 and 14 points, depending on what poll you look at, but an average of 8 points, and we'll get to that in a little bit. Hypocrisy at its finest. Not only did they nominate Amy Coney Barrett, Amy Coney Barrett will be the youngest justice ever appointed to the court because they are looking for longevity. She has only been a federal circuit judge for three years. And I understand it takes a resume to get put on the federal circuit, but there are judges on the federal circuit that have been there a lot longer than Amy Coney Barrett. Amy Coney Barrett came recommended by the Federalist Society and other societies that put forth nominees. The Federalist Society put her on the list of nominees that Trump should appoint in order to do things like overturn Roe v. Wade, overturn gay marriage, etc. And here we are. And there's not much the Democrats can do because the Democrats didn't fight in 2016. The Democrats should have pulled out all the stops. The Democrats should have been campaigning on the fact that the Republicans were hijacking legislative process in regard to the judiciary. And they didn't. And there's not quite enough fight this time, although you appreciate what you see in these hearings. Um, It's not quite the circus that Kavanaugh was. And I feel like the Democrats are doing a really good job of campaigning during this hearing. And I think they're resonating with a lot of American people. Polls say that 56% of Americans do not think Amy Coney Barrett should be confirmed until after a new president um, or, or until after the election. 
but American popular opinion does not matter uh, because the GOP does not care about America, American popular opinion. What's frustrating about these hearings, though, is the answers. So everything is on the line. Healthcare is on the line. Women's rights are on the line. I've, I've been through it. And it's obvious. It is obvious because the Republicans have said it and Donald Trump has said it. It is obvious that Amy Coney Barrett is a, an agent of the Republican agenda, knowingly or not. But it's kind of difficult to, to rationalize or try to excuse the fact that someone who is a federal judge, who is obviously intelligent, who is involved politically because the casework kind of involves it, who worked on the Bush-Gore um, campaign uh, for that election, she worked on that case in support of Republicans, someone like that is not going to be immune to hearing what the president has said and what the Republican agenda is. She knows that she's being put, being put forth for a reason. And I don't think it's necessarily her job to acknowledge that in a hearing. But I do think it is her job to acknowledge her stances as a judge moving forward on those cases, especially when things like precedent are being put before her. On multiple occasions, she's asked, well, this has been precedent. Do you see this as precedent? Well, if this came before you and there's 40 years of precedent, would you overturn that precedent? And she continues to say, well, you know, I don't want to opine on that because it's a hypothetical. But the fact of the matter is, if, if we're putting forth a nomination for the bench and they refuse to answer any questions, why are we having a hearing? If we're not going to be able to glean anything about their character or their stances or their record because they refuse to give any indication whatsoever as to how they act professionally other than look at my record, which you can do without a hearing, why are we having the hearing? As Americans, we all deserve better confirmation hearings. Past justices have given far more elaborate answers than she has. She is essentially stonewalling to get through. And yes, it's right before an election. So it's a sensitive time, and the Republicans don't want her to look bad, and Democrats don't want to come off too harsh. So we're in a situation where we've been put in a situation because of the timing of the nomination where we can't even hold an effective hearing because it is by nature politicized because we are three weeks from an election. We deserve better. We need more straightforward answers. And, and what's more scary and what's been alluded to a lot in the news is that she cannot even seem to answer basic questions that are stated in the Constitution. For instance, uh, I have a clip here of her working around a question and not giving a straight answer on whether president should commit to the peaceful transfer of power. Do you believe that every president should make a commitment unequivocally and resolutely to the peaceful transfer of power. Well, Senator, that seems to me to be pulling me in a little bit into this question of whether the president has said that he would not peacefully leave office. And so to the extent that this is a political controversy right now, as a judge, I want to stay out of it and I don't want to express a view. So that Senator Cory Booker questioning Amy Coney Barrett. And so here's a situation where George Washington put in place the peaceful transfer of power. This is literally something that has happened since our first president. It is in the Constitution. This is not something that should be up for debate. 
you can understand, not understand, you can pretend, you can see where she's coming from legally if you want to take it there, but this is not a trial. We're trying to understand what kind of person is Amy Coney Barrett. Does Amy Coney Barrett understand that the Constitution protects basically the American people? from hostile takeover of power or for hostile retention of power, and that our presidents engage in the peaceful transfer of power because Americans accept the outcome of votes, and that should be a given. Because when we're listening to these hearings and we can't get clear answers on women's reproductive rights, we can't get clear answers on the peaceful transfer of power, we can't get clear answers on marriage equality, we are sitting here as Americans thinking... Our country could be pulled 50 years backwards, 50 years, and we have a judge who might be appointed to the Supreme Court who is not willing to give any reassurance whatsoever that she can even defend what's written in the Constitution, which gives the impression that we may be appointing a judge to the Supreme Court who's willing to give interpretations of the Constitution that are so far beyond the actual text that it may actually defy the Constitution. We may be in a point where we have judges maybe making decisions that are unconstitutional because they twist the Constitution so far or ignore portions of it so much that we are placed in a position where, well, you know, maybe a president doesn't need to pass off power peacefully. Maybe abortions should be illegal, even a crime. Maybe marriage equality isn't an American idea and a man shouldn't be able to marry a man or a woman shouldn't be able to marry marry a woman. Maybe that's not protected. Maybe that's not part of the general welfare. Maybe that's not part of personal freedom. So her answers are not giving any reassurance. And I understand the right is listening and they're thinking, oh, she's doing a great job. She's doing great. But Americans deserve an answer. Republicans should know if Amy Coney Barrett thinks that abortion is, in fact, unconstitutional. And she stated that there are portions of the ACA that she, you know, that she disagrees with openly. But that was her personal life. She said that was her paper, you know, as a professor, as an independent person. But as a judge, she uh, would not necessarily rule in that fashion. But then she provides no evidence or support that that wouldn't be the case. She she provides no information that says, I know that I've written these things in my personal life, but here's an example of where I ruled in a way that I don't personally believe. We have no examples of that. We have no reason to believe her. And, you know, Sheldon Whitehouse was saying uh, yesterday, you know, take them at their word. Take the Republicans at the word with their agenda. And, and if there's no additional supporting information coming from Amy Coney Barrett, then we need to believe that what she has written as a public citizen, uh, sorry, as a private citizen, is going to be the way she'll likely rule on the bench. And that is what is scary. And again, I think we as the American people deserve a little bit more clarity when we're appointing someone to the court for life. But we, we didn't have to be here. And this isn't Amy Coney Barrett's fault. And It wasn't even Brett Kavanaugh's fault or Neil Gorsuch's fault or Merrick Garland's fault. What the real issue here is, is that we're allowing justices to be appointed on party lines with a bare minimum majority of 50. And further, now we're appointing justices who have limited federal experience. At a minimum, you can say, well, there are a lot of other judges out there besides Amy Coney Barrett who have more 
experience on the federal circuit than she does that maybe should have been considered for appointment. So maybe moving forward, justices should have a minimum number of years on the bench at the federal level. Or maybe we shouldn't be appointing Supreme Court justices for a lifetime. Maybe it should be 18 years. You know, I I do believe that longevity matters. I do believe experience matters. I don't think we should be putting term limits in place that are so short that you can never gain the level of experience that would provide real expertise. And the same, I I take the same view on, on the Senate and the House. But what the real issue is, is that up until 2016, it took 60 votes to approve a judge. And that meant that no matter what, unless one party had a supermajority, you needed members of the other side to vote with you to approve the judge. And that means that you couldn't appoint an extremist judge. You couldn't appoint a super conservative. You couldn't appoint a super liberal. And you'd need members from both sides to vote. And if the Republicans have 53 seats and they need 60 votes, well, then seven Democrats and independents would need to vote to approve, which means that Neil Gorsuch would not have been pushed through, nor would have Brett Kavanaugh nor would have Amy Coney Barrett. We'd be looking at three very different judges if only they were not allowed to go nuclear. So I believe we need a constitutional amendment that says in order for all federal appointments, you need 60 votes and maybe some contingency where if there's deadlock in the Senate, maybe it goes to the House or something like that. You know, if 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 Big Brother is not mature enough, Big Brother being the Senate in this case, not Orwellian, but, you know, if the if the mature Uh, legislative body can't get it done, well, then maybe pass it off to uh, the junior body and see if they can get it done. You know, put in contingencies for deadlock, because the reason so many openings were held under Obama was because Mitch McConnell was allowed to deadlock the Senate, and it shouldn't happen. Or maybe have some type of joint vote between the House and the Senate, but build in those contingencies for protections that say you must have essentially a 60% vote for any any federal judge on the federal circuit or Supreme Court. And we wouldn't be here. And it's on us as American citizens to make those demands, by the way, because we're all sitting here watching it happen. We need to make those demands. We need to be calling our senators. We need to be implementing that in local legislation. So that's my piece on SCOTUS. Um, there, there, there's a lot coming there. Um, maybe we'll cover some of it next week, but we also get an election coming up. So it, it, it's busy. She'll likely be confirmed. You know, I honestly, she's not Brett Kavanaugh. Brett Kavanaugh was disgusting. And even professionally, it seemed like there was something going on there that that wasn't great. At least Amy Coney Barrett can answer questions. Well, she she deflects out of questions, but she seems professional, which is something, right? So uh, so so that's where I am with SCOTUS. Um, I want to get to the election. And I'm going to go a few different ways with this. So I want you to hang with me. I'm going to start with polls. 2016 turned a lot of Democrats off to polls because polls said Hillary Clinton was up and Donald Trump said polls are wrong, polls are wrong, polls are wrong. And this is the one area. This is the one area where Donald Trump has been able to effectively hit a nerve on the Democratic side and make a difference. Donald Trump has Democrats not trusting polls. That's a Donald Trump idea. That is something that Donald Trump has put out in the universe. Because he won. And he has us convinced that the polls in 2016 were wrong. And they weren't. At least they weren't in the way that you think they were. Hillary Clinton won the popular vote by about 3%. That's what the polls said. The states that Trump won that were leaning Clinton were not leaning Clinton so heavily that they weren't within the margin of error. 
the polls had Trump, were giving Trump a much larger chance to win the election than we saw in the mainstream news. And, you know, that's what network you watch and what polls are being reported. But polling in general was not too far off. It wasn't accurate, but it wasn't too far off. So here we are this year. Should we look at polls? Uh, what's different in 2020? Well, uh, polling agencies have actually changed some things. And, and one of the big things is the way that they weigh educated voters that they poll. So Nate Silver runs the website 538. 538 is a great website. If you're interested in polling, if you're interested in like keeping track of any of that stuff, analytics, they have polls for presidential race, Senate race, disapproval rating, everything. And they also have articles on a whole bunch of other stuff there, kind of your standard current event news site. Uh, but go check out 538. But this is a clip of Nate Silver talking to Katie Couric in September on what changed in the polls. One of the largest changes they've made in polling since 2016 was in regard to especially educated voters. Has polling changed at all, Nate, since 2016, since some of the states did kind of get it wrong? Yeah, so pollsters will say that the main thing they think that was going wrong in 2016 was that you had differential voting by education and that you had too many college-educated voters in your polls. So it used to be that 10 or 20 years ago, whether you went to a four-year college or not did not really predict very much about who you'd vote for, about even numbers of people voting for Republicans and Democrats among college graduates. Now it does. College graduates are much more likely to support today's Democratic Party and less likely to support Trump. So the dirty little secret is that polls tend to get more people who are higher news consumers, who are more educated, right, are more likely to answer pollsters' phone calls. And now if you have too many educated voters in your sample, that's going to skew a little Democratic. And so especially in states that are more working class, like Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, that proved to be a problem. And so most pollsters, although not all, are now waiting by education. So if they get too many college-educated voters, they will um, literally wait up the non-college voters to get a more representative sample. So in 2016, especially, you had this idea of the silent majority, which were these people who, you know, were not willing to let pollsters know that they were voting for Trump, supposedly. But what Nate Silver is saying here is that the pollsters were not reaching the right demographics. They weren't looking at the whole picture. And like he said... You have more educated people who are more likely to tune into the news, who are more likely to answer the phone and actually take a poll, um, as opposed to maybe your, you know, let's call them a typical Trump voter who's, uh, I believe, an uneducated white male uh, pri primarily, um, who maybe won't answer the phone for the poll or won't take the poll or, you know, isn't tied into the news cycle 24-7 because, you know, maybe they work a blue-collar job, maybe they work a night shift or, you know, whatever reason. And so he's saying that, they're trying to wait. They're trying to make up for that deficit in 2020. Um, also part of that interview, he was saying that it may not have been part of that interview, actually. It may have been in a separate clip. But what, what's also different in 2020 is that Joe Biden's lead in most of the states exceeds the margin of error in a way that did not exist for Hillary Clinton. So if you look at the polls at 538.com, and I've got a rundown here, um, a couple of things are really interesting. The, the first is that Joe Biden's average lead right now is about eight points, which is about where Hillary Clinton was at this time. But Joe Biden is polling as high as 14 points up on reputable polls. Another indicator that I was looking at was the presidential disapproval rating. How many people disapprove of Trump's job? And that number's on the rise. And on the high side, it's at 
So six out of 10 voters, according to that number, disapprove of President Trump's job performance. So those two numbers, Biden polling so much higher than Clinton in a lot of cases, and Trump's disapproval being 57% are interesting indicators of what we have to look forward to like three weeks out. So I want to go over the likely outcomes. I just want to I just want to take a look at this real quick just to see where everybody's at and feel free to drop comments and let me know what you think and say Jerry you're 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 crazy you don't trust that whatever. Um but current rundowns. The battleground states and battlegrounds are uh states that are usually contested but I'm also including states that are typically democrat that went Trump in 2016. In Arizona Biden has an average of a three-point lead. In Florida, Biden has an average of four-point lead, uh, four lead there. In Georgia, two points, which is within the margin of error. In Iowa, which is typically a Republican stronghold, polls have it dead even. In Michigan, uh, which went Trump in 2016, Biden has an eight-point lead. In Minnesota, Biden is up nine points. In Nevada, Biden's up six points. In North Carolina, which is typically a a hard-fought state, Biden is up an average of four points there. In Ohio, Biden is up half a point, which has been another strong Republican state. In Pennsylvania, which Trump took in 2016, Biden is up an average of seven points. And in Texas, Texas, Donald Trump is up one point, one. In Wisconsin, Joe Biden is up seven. If you take those state polls, as are, you would have Biden winning the Electoral College 368 to 163. You need to get 270. Biden would be 368. Trump 163. And I'm not including Iowa in that, by the way, which is seven electoral votes um, because it's dead even. So I just didn't include it. And there's a couple of like Georgia's plus two Biden. You might say that's margin of error, but at 368 electoral votes, that's a landslide. If Biden won Texas, he'd take 406 electoral votes to Trump's 125. That's the territory that we're operating in right now, where North Carolina and and states like Ohio are beginning to go light blue and other states that you thought would be closer, like Pennsylvania, are really trending Biden. And states like Texas, that should never even be in consideration for the Democrats, at least not in the last you know, 30 years, have a chance to go blue. And maybe an even bigger chance, and I'll get to that in, in voting in a little bit here. I'm going to try to speed this up a little bit because I want to get everything in within the hour. And I do want to take a look at you know early voting and a little bit of voter for suppression. But the other big thing that polls are reflecting is the Senate outlook. Right now, Republicans control the Senate, 53 Republicans to 45 Democrats and two independents, which is essentially a 53 to 47 uh, majority. Doug Jones is currently the Democrat representing Alabama, and he's extremely likely to lose to Republican challenger Tommy Tuberville. So if we concede that seat, it'll be a 54 to 44 to 2 um, Senate in favor of the Republicans. However, in Colorado, Republican incumbent Cory Gardner is losing to John Hick- Hickenlooper. Hickenlooper is up anywhere between 7 and 10 points. In Arizona, incumbent Republican uh, McSally is losing to Kelly, the Democrat, 
by 7 to 10 points. In Maine, Susan Collins is down to challenger Gideon. Somewhere between 2 and 8 points, depending on the polls. And, and in all the states, the polling's kind of different. Some states have really great polls that are much more accurate. and other ones, they're kind of all over. But anywhere from 2 to 8 points in Maine. Tom Tillis is losing to challenger Cunningham in North Carolina, and Cunningham's up between 5 and 10 points. In Iowa, Jody Ernst is losing to challenger Greenfield, and Greenfield is up anywhere 2 to 5 points. If the Republicans win those, sorry, if the Democrats win those races, Colorado, Arizona, Maine, North Carolina, and Iowa, they will have the majority in the Senate uh, with the two independents, 51 to 49. The next few states are close races. In Montana, the Republican incumbent is being challenged pretty strongly by the Democratic challenger, uh, former governor, um, Bullock. Polls there favor Danes, but it's close. In Georgia, the Republican incumbent, Purdue, is being challenged by Ossoff, and the polls are all over the place, but very slight edge to Purdue, probably about a point, according to the polls. In South Carolina, Lindsey Graham and Jamie Harrison are in a dead-even race in South Carolina. In Michigan, there's a Democratic incumbent. They thought the race would be close, but the Democratic incumbent in Michigan now has a three to eight point lead. And of course, we all hope that Mitch McConnell gets voted out in Kentucky. And that race is closer than it should be, but not as close as the races above. That is one, two, three additional races. So even if the Democrats lose one of those earlier states where they have substantial leads now, there are three other states where they have chances to take seats that are kind of a cushion. Right now, it looks like the Senate is going to go Democrat. It looks like there's a chance that we could be going into a 2021 with a Democratic House, Senate, and President, and that has not happened since Obama won in 2008. And trust me, if it happens, I will be the first to hold the Democrats to a high standard because we need to get stuff done. We cannot be like the Republicans were from 2016 to 2018, doing nothing in Congress whatsoever with majorities in the Senate, the House, and with the presidency. That cannot happen. So we need to hold our Democratic representatives uh, accountable should that be the scenario. We cannot let that go to waste. But that brings me up to this idea of voter suppression. And really, if we take everything we just heard, it's the left that needs to be skeptical when it comes to election results. We have a president who was saying not to trust election results. We have a president who was saying that voter suppression is happening everywhere, not to trust the ballots, don't go vote. We also have a president who wants to have poll watchers. And I need to get the exact part of law, and I'm sorry I don't have that for you guys, but a law was repealed recently, which essentially said it was illegal to have people at the polls watching um, put there by the, the respective parties, because it's voter intimidation. But now Donald Trump is calling for people to go watch the polls, make sure everything is looking good. Here is Donald Trump talking about poll watchers. I'm urging my supporters to go into the polls and watch very carefully because that's what has to happen. I am urging them to do it. As you know, today there was a big problem. In Philadelphia, they went in to watch. They were called poll watchers, a very safe, very nice thing. They were thrown out. They weren't allowed to watch. You know why? Because bad things happen in Philadelphia. Bad things. So first, the whole thing about Philadelphia at the end, the whole thing about that was fact-checked and proved wrong because Donald Trump is saying that there are poll, poll watchers, or there were. This was during the first Democratic, sorry, the first presidential debate. Donald Trump was saying that people were watching the polls and, you know, they need to do it. And, you know, 
stuff was going wrong. Pennsylvania was not even in early voting. They weren't even in early voting yet. So the whole story was made up. When Trump is saying, you know, poll watchers, very nice. Poll watchers have been showing up with guns, armed, obviously, you know, with the MAGA hats and stuff like that. And if you are a black voter, especially minority voter, and you're walking up to a polling place and there's a group of people who are, quote, watching the polls and they're armed and they're Trump supporters. And you know about all the racist, re- racist rhetoric that has come from this president. You probably aren't going to be extremely comfortable waiting in that line. And I know most, if not all, those people will stay in that line and cast their vote and hopefully without incident. But voter intimidation is voter suppression and Donald Trump is calling for it blatantly. It's not okay in America. People have the right to cast their vote in a safe and comfortable environment. If our vote, if our right to vote isn't safe, then then is anything in America sacred? We also have issues of voter suppression in Texas and California. So I want to get to California first. Um, actually, let's rewind. Er, uh, about a month ago, the GOP was making this big deal out of 50 ballots that were accidentally thrown out in Pennsylvania. Um, those ballots were received, but they were accidentally discarded. And the mistake was caught, and the ballots were counted, and they said most were Trump votes uh, from the military, but they hadn't been opened. So the votes were found, the votes were accounted for, the mistake was rectified, it was an accident. 50 votes. 50. In Texas, right now, in Harrison County, uh, where Houston is, there are 5 million people there. And originally, they had 12 drop boxes for early voting ballots. So they, these, these boxes were distributed throughout the county. You could go. You could drop them off. And the Republican governor sued because he only wanted one box per county, and a court upheld that. So in a county of 5 million people, I'm from Rhode Island. There are 1 million people in my state. If there were only one drop box in Rhode Island, it would be hell on earth. In a county of 5 million, five times the state of Rhode Island. One drop box. One. A governor literally sued to make voting more difficult in that county, which, by the way, leans heavily Democrat. Heavily. In the same county, they're actually using drive through voting right now. And the Republicans are suing to get that removed as well. So in a time of a pandemic where you shouldn't be in close contact with other people, where probably shouldn't even be waiting in line with a bunch of other people, The Republicans in Texas are trying to stop drive-through voting. But what's really interesting here is in California. In California, the Republican Party, not individual citizens, not people who happen to be Republican, the Republican Party has placed misleading drop boxes around the state claiming to be authorized drop boxes. So people, Democrat, Republican, Independent, are walking up to these boxes and putting their ballots in with the expectation that those ballots will be delivered through a vetted chain of custody to the election board. We have a political party in America collecting ballots of people of not only their party, but also Democrats and independents. And there is no chain of custody on those ballots. The Republicans in California are trying to take advantage of a law that allows for an individual other than the voter to deliver a ballot. So, for instance, if you live with someone who's elderly and can't get to the ballot box, um, 
you can take their ballot to the mailbox for them um, so that you're not committing a crime. And this is the law that the GOP in California is trying to take advantage of saying, well, if anyone can deliver anyone's ballot, then we're just going to start collecting. We're going to literally do what we've accused the Democrats of doing. We're going to ballot harvest, but we're going to do it in broad daylight. And we're going to put out unauthorized boxes saying they're authorized to do so. But 50 ballots that were thrown out in Pennsylvania and recovered, that's what the Republicans want to whine about while they execute plans like this. And this is why voter suppression is such a big issue for the Democrats. It's in your face. Just like the theft of the Supreme Court vacancy was taken in your face and hypocritical, so is everything voter suppression. In the time of a pandemic where we need to make it easy to vote, we're making it harder to vote. We're asking people to put their health on the line to vote. And it's not okay. Voter fraud in America is extremely minimal. I believe I saw like 0.0002% of all votes, I believe I, I saw, are, are considered fraudulent. Most cases, like we saw earlier with the Pennsylvania, most stories you hear about that, like ballots being misplaced or, you know, discovered somewhere else. All those issues are almost always rectified prior to the final vote count. It's not like those votes aren't counted and they're disregarded and six months later you find them. For, for, for a presidential election especially, it doesn't happen. And yet the GOP is ballot harvesting in California. What, some other things I'd like to watch here are, is the early voting and what I think that means. Over 12 million Americans have already voted. We had 120, Americans, uh, 120 million Americans roughly vote in 2016. 12 million Americans have already voted. And this might be a great litmus test for what a national holiday election day would look like because people have time to go vote because they're not constrained to one day. So if you're working on election day, maybe before you couldn't vote, well, now you get weeks to vote. Now you can vote by mail. And I think it's really funny that Republicans have a problem with this because it's always assumed that opening up access to voters will favor Democrats, which is just testament to the fact that they know that the people who can't make it to the ballot box are you know, probably lower income workers or people who can't afford to miss work or people who maybe have health issues and can't get at the polls right away. And they're trying to stop those people from voting. They just don't want them to vote. That's all. Don't open it up. We don't want those people to vote. If they couldn't get there on election day, why should they vote? Because it's their right. It is their right as Americans to vote. So we've got record early voting. We have people, and what's super promising is that it's early voting weeks before election, and people are standing in line for eight hours to vote. This isn't election day where it's like your last chance to vote and you have to stand in line, your vote won't count. We're three weeks out, two, three weeks out, and people are standing in line for eight hours. And that is a, that is a great sign. People are out there voting, they're exercising their right to do so. And we may see the largest voter turnout in American history. And if we do, if this is the largest voter turnout in American history, then I think the outcome will be safe to assume that that is what America is. If 2008 was the largest turnout prior, and this is the next largest turnout, or maybe the largest turnout ever, and in both situations, those elections swung unanimously Democrat on a federal level, I think that is the best indicator of where the majority of Americans stand on all these issues. If 2020 is the largest voter turnout ever in the midst of a pandemic, and we win the presidency, the Senate, and the House, and 2008 ends up being the second most 
second largest voter turnout in which he won the presidency, the Senate, and the House, I think it will be unequivocally obvious that this is a democratic, progressive-leaning country. Because if the only time Republicans win is when voter turnout is low, then it's very clear that it is not that those elections are not accurate representations of what the majority of voters believe. Whether or not those voters get out to the ballot box every election to vote, yes, that's on them. But if every time we, the people show up in large numbers and it's unanimously de- Democrat, I think that's testament to us as a country. That's where our ideals are, our nation, in equality and in a woman's right to choose and in treating everyone with dignity and respect and in moving forward with civil rights and moving away from racism and treating everyone with dignity and respect and putting other people first sometimes. Maybe giving up a little bit for the betterment of society. That's where the Democrats land. And if every time voters turn out and it's unanimously swung that way, I think we need to start thinking about what our country really represents and how to get that message across more clearly because we cannot continue to allow the minority of Americans to drive the majority of policy and legislation in this country. And that's gone on too long. So we have covered a lot and I'm under an hour. So thank you so much for listening uh, to The New Deal. I hope to be back next week, potentially with a guest. Uh, As we get closer to election, I'm sure that the focus will be more on election. So stay tuned here for that. But we got through COVID, we got through voter suppression, we got through the Supreme Court stuff, and we get to talk polls. So really glad I was able to do all of that with you guys. Uh, We'll look forward to new episodes next week. In the meantime, head over to YouTube, check out the new minute, which I try to get up daily, just, you know, five to 10 minute video on on that day's happenings or an issue that I feel uh, strongly about. Uh, You can go to thenewdial.com, check out articles that I've written, blog posts, uh, old podcasts there. And uh, make sure you follow on Facebook, Twitter, on Instagram, and subscribe on YouTube. So great talking to everybody. Uh, Thank you so much for listening. Comment. Talk to me. Start a conversation. I will respond. Uh, Let me know what you guys think of these episodes. And uh, hopefully you come back and listen again. Hopefully you've enjoyed what you've heard. So this has been the New Deal podcast for October 14, 15 of 2020. Thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you guys soon.